I think what we are talking about right now, though, is that we are seeing somewhat of a fraying of that sort of globalist system, and some of the reshoring initiatives,、um, certainly, and you know, specifically in the in the Chips Act, in that in that critical industry, are. Are taking steps in the right direction to kind of correct some of those some of those problems. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by Michael Cow, aka Urban Cowboy, on Twitter. Michael is an ex hedge fund manager and now runs his own、uh, private family office. But I'm sure many of you will probably be familiar with him already. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to finally meet you. Yeah, you as well.、Um, Folks, we we almost actually ended up doing this with another mic,、uh, and that would have been three mics on one show. Michael told me that three mics is actually okay. Four is when you risk a hole in the、uh, space time continuum. So that's right. <laughs> <laughs> It's a fundamental rule of the universe.、Um, guys, I'm I'm very excited for this show. On the margin, listeners, you guys probably know we've been really digging into kind of the dollar, energy, and the intersection there、uh, for a long time. We're we're really lucky to be joined by Michael today because he's actually premiering a thesis、uh, that's going to be debuting at at a talk that he's giving in West Point in the next、uh, month or so. So, Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your thesis. I'm just going to turn it over to you. I've got a whole bunch of questions for you. Can you just walk us through what's the title of your thesis? Why now? Like why why does the subject interest you? Hey, yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity to kind of、uh, to debut this thesis.、Um, so, you know, sometime. Maybe like nine months ago,、uh, Lieutenant Commander、uh, Mike Saint Pierre, who is my collaborator on this paper, reached out to me and told me about this、uh, this symposium at West Point in February、um, that uh, that he wanted to present at, and would I like to be his collaborator on it? And you know, when he talked about that, you know, the the, the topic would be the essentially the geopolitics of the dollar. And how it relates to energy security and whatnot. I thought, well, that's totally that's totally in my wheelhouse because that's what I naturally like to tweet about and think about、um, and analyze.、Mm. So,、um, so you know, we don't have we don't have the final、uh, title nailed down yet. But、uh, I guess a prospective title、uh, for this paper is going to be、uh, the you know the primacy of the U.S. dollar and its role in the great power competition. And obviously, you know, the great power competition that I refer to is. None other than the the one between、uh, the U.S. and China. So,、um, at, you know, at, at its very high level,、um, the idea here is that you know the the U.S. led economic rules based order or RBO as the military types like to like to use、um, is is basic is being challenged obviously by by China and that the 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 re- we need to recognize that the foundational pillar. Oh, this rules-based order is an economic pillar、uh, that rests on the primacy of the U.S. dollar.、Uh, the primacy of the U.S. dollar,、uh, in terms of its role as a global reserve currency,、uh, rests uh, on uh, rests upon、um, certain elements of of national power, which which we will discuss.、Um, and and you know we 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 talk about the. You know the current threats、um, and some of the inconsistent policies that are,、uh, in a way,、uh, at odds with our geostrategic initiatives. So you know we 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 kind of conclude the paper with some very specific policy proposals on where we're strong, but where we're we are kind of fucking up, and、mm. we need to we need to make some course corrections. To ensure that this
that this U.S.-led um, RBO uh, continues. You, in another podcast, I actually really liked the way you light, laid things out between like exogenous forces and endogenous forces that support the U.S. dollar, right? Exogenous forces kind of being the market structure, right, that supports our U- the USD global system, and then endogenous forces, which is kind of this natural organic desire to use dollars, right? Maybe based on the assets of the US. So can you kind of describe a little bit like tease apart, what is that kind of reflexive relationship and how much of it comes from endogenous versus exogenous forces? Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna credit that use of endogenous and exogenous to to our mutual friend Dimitri Kofinas yeah. because uh, great question. So I think in a in a in a in a Twitter space that uh, that he hosted that I participated in that's he he used that term and I kind of latched onto it because I think that's that's exactly the way I think about it. Um, I'm gonna introduce um, maybe a a a matrix uh, to think about, okay? Um, so just, it's a very simple, uh, you know, two by two matrix. Think of it as strengths on, on the vertical axis, sorry, currency exchange strength on the vertical axis and um, adoption, okay, on the horizontal axis, right? Mm. So when you think of it uh, this way, right, it's it's it kind of frames the endogenous exogenous argument because the, the role of the U.S. dollar as a hegemonic global reserve currency is is kind of captured in the adoption, that horizontal axis. And that adoption, the reason why the world has chosen the U.S. dollar uh, as the primary reserve currency and essentially, you know, 90 percent of of uh, currency, currency, all foreign exchange transactions are denominated in U.S. dollars. Um, that rests more upon like these endogenous uh, endogenous factors that would include, um, you know, for instance, um, in our paper, we examine um, three key economic pillars. We talk about the importance of geography, right, geographic assets that essentially allow the, the, the U.S. To, sp- to spend its national treasure on um, on things that other things other than uh, defending, for instance, our physical borders, because we have almost impregnable physical borders compared to, say, China, right? Um, the Another economic pillar would be uh, the, the natural resources that we have in terms of not just oil, but food, right? And so when you compare that to, to uh, China, uh, they're naturally short these these critical uh, components, but then you know the the issue of industrial policy, right? Or does industrial capacity is what we were talking about, um, is an area where I think we've seeded uh, quite a bit of leadership. Um, you know, specifically, you know, it, one of the themes in our paper, one of the key comparisons that we draw in our paper is comparing. Uh, what's happened in the semiconductor industry versus the oil and gas industry? In the semiconductor uh, industry, but both industries are are um, industries that basically had their origins in the U.S. The U.S. invented both industries, if you think about it, right? From the from the first oil well drilled in Pennsylvania in the 1800s to the first semiconductors invented in the 1950s, the U.S. Initially had dominance and then ceded leadership. Now, 
one of the themes that we are talking about is that, you know, in the semiconductor industry, at least, um, it, it seems that uh, the powers that be, our policymakers in multiple administrations, have finally uh, come to terms with how critical that particular industry is and have actually taken pretty um, solid legislative steps to address some of those some of those shortcomings uh, in conjunction with uh, coercive uh, measures like uh, sanctions and and export controls, but what I find ironic, and this is this is the part that pertains to energy, in the energy uh, industry, uh, oil and gas specifically, because of this this blind devotion to the ESG mandate, we are. Uh, essentially hamstringing ourselves in a critical uh, industry where we have an innate advantage. We are actually the largest oil producer in the world right now, ahead of Saudi Arabia and Russia. And yet our own uh, industrial policies are overtly hostile to, to that industry. So anyways, I'm digressing a little bit, maybe getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but I'm mm -hmm. basically talking about these economic pillars of national power, geography, um, um, natural resources, industrial capacity being key to the endogenous strength and the reason for the adoption of the dollar, right? Mm. The exogenous forces that, that determine more sort of like the cyclical currency exchange rates have to do with things like where we are in the monetary cycle. Um, and and interest rate differentials and whatnot. So when I think of that matrix that I described, right? So again, horizontal axis being adoption and vertical axis being currency exchange strength, I think of four different quadrants. Quadrant one being, okay, you have a situation where you've got a, a, a currency with weak adoption and weak, weak exchange rates. That, that quadrant describes the challenges of many uh, EM currencies, right? And at, at an extreme, it describes the challenge of the, uh, the Weimar Republic, where a complete loss of faith and loss of, loss of adoption led to a, a hyperinflation and a hyper devaluation of the currency, right? That's quadrant one. Quadrant uh, two, where you have relatively strong adoption, but relatively um, weak exchange rates can describe the quandary of say uh, the Euro and the yen in recent history, right? Where, you know, the Euro and the yen are the two largest components of the dollar index uh, in, in terms of, you know, the, the other key uh, uh, currencies that are, that are in use in the world. Uh, they don't come close to the dollar in terms of dominance, but yet they are the two, uh, uh, you know, mo biggest other currencies in terms of uh, adoption. And yet, uh, because of uh, differences in central bank policies, um, their currencies have in, have um, undergone uh, uh, pretty severe devaluations recently against the U.S. dollar. And of course, in, in more recent history, right, and as in the last several months. Um, you've seen the dollar itself take a breather and some of those currencies um, come back. That's quadrant two, right? Quadrant three would be 
um, currencies that don't have a lot of global adoption, but have always maintained a, a, a decent amount of currency uh, exchange rate strength. And I would say uh, a, a currency like Swiss franc falls into right. that uh, category, right? Where it's not that widely used as a global currency, but it's all, always been perceived as a safe haven type of currency, right? Mm. And finally, we come to quadrant four. Quadrant four is where you've got a hegemonic currency in terms of adoption. And that, that, that also coincides with uh, currency exchange rate strength, which is what we are experiencing right now in the U.S. dollar. And that combination results in what I call the U.S. dollar wrecking ball, right? Mm. Because when, when the entire world um, is essentially denominated in U.S. dollars and the U.S. dollars are, are currently very, very strong, the results in the U.S. dollar wrecking ball. And so the final part of our thesis uh, is a geopolitical one. So, so when I think about that from a um, uh, sort of economic warfare perspective, well, I think it's interesting right now that the U.S. dollar finds itself in quadrant four because in the name of fighting inflation, um, there is an opportunity to sow economic chaos via a strong U.S. dollar, a, via a U.S. dollar wrecking ball, because I perceive the other uh, regional um, economic blocks, namely the Eurozone, China, Japan, as ill-equipped to uh, keep pace with the Fed. In fact, yesterday I posted a mini thread about this. I think that they said that, you know, who's the, the, the mini thread was who's really going to outhawk the Fed. For me to, to ultimately call the cyclical top um, in the U.S. dollar in this cycle, I have to really believe that either other central banks around the world are going to actually outhawk the Fed or the Fed is going to somehow outdove the rest of the world. Because remember, currency exchange strength is a relative thing, right? Mm. So the Fed could very well be on its way to hitting or getting close to that to that terminal uh, Fed funds rate. But if the Fed stops hiking, do you really think that um, Lagarde is going to keep hiking? Do you really think that the Bank of Japan is going to relax yield curve control. Like my my, I guess my view. I mean, look, I could be totally wrong on this. Maybe they they are uh, going to find their result. But when I look at uh, when I look through um, w the words and the jawboning and look to look through to actual policy actions, I I get the sense that the rest of the world central banks are all holding their collective breaths, hoping that the Fed can engineer a deep enough global recession so that they don't need to, to administer their hard medicine. Because, right, because, you know, the, the, we, and we can talk further about that, but I, I, I see the Bank of Japan's yield curve control strategy, the, the, the recent relaxation of their, um, you know, 25 basis point upper bound on JGB yields to 50 basis points mm. as like the reason for a, for a, a, uh, a secular resurgence of the yen, I'm not seeing it. Mm. I'm not seeing it. Um, and then similarly in the Euro zone, I see a, this, and this is a pretty out of consensus argument. I actually think that mother nature had to do with um, the 
ability for the Eurozone to weather this current winter as well as it has, because the consensus, remember, uh, originally before uh, around this uh, uh, this uh, Russia-Ukraine invasion was that, you know, Europe was could find itself in a real bind come winter uh, being cut off from Russian gas. You know, again, this goes right back to um, how um, energy policies uh, are wrapped into the geopolitics of currencies, right? Because through 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 all of these ESG, these blind initiatives to ESG, Germany in particular has made itself uh, inextricably um, de- uh, dependent on Russian gas flows. Were it not for Mother Nature's kindness this winter, I think um, Christine Lagarde, in turn, would not be able to be as as uh, sort of aggressive in her hawkish jawboning, right? There's Michael. There's a there's a lot to dig in on there. Let me just see if I can <laughs> sum up. <laughs> there's a lot of different, but you covered so much, and I I just want to especially let me just try to sum up the endogenous exogenous argument here. Like sure. endogenous, I feel like I understand pretty intuitively. I actually almost think about it the two sides of a ledger, right? There's like the assets and the liabilities. On the assets, yes. the U.S. has. You were sort of quoting some like there are a lot of geographical advantages. I know you're a fan yes. of Peter's eye hands. U.S. is the accidental superpower. You were talking about arable land. I know the U.S. is 15 times the amount of arable land, you know, compared to China. We've got strong waterways. All these were isolated and away from, you know, Europe and China. They all sit very close together. So there are like those sorts of advantages. I would also add deep and liquid capital markets and rock strong uh, property rights laws and a, and a solid legislative yep. system. I would say those That's in right. like the asset column. And then in the liabilities column, we kind of have our our dollars, right, that we export uh, to the rest of the world. In, but in a lot of ways, we'll get that it's an asset for us as well. Um, two questions that I have on the exogenous uh, side of things. You know, when I also think about some of the the other reason why we have uh, the USD as the reserve currency, it's all those assets we were talking about. Also, we have the strongest military and we like it, yep. right? We we enforce uh, other countries using the United States uh, dollar as, as a form of trade. And then the other thing is we have a relationship uh, with, especially with Saudi Arabia, but we've we basically made oil trade uh, mandated that that's denominated in USD and kind of created this idea of the petrodollar. So where would you put those two forces? Are those exogenous forces? And how significant do you think they are? Let, let me just uh, clarify um, something real, right off the bat, which is that the, the whole notion of um, Bretton Woods and then the subsequent, you know, sort of, you know, setting up the petrodollar system. I feel like sometimes that narrative is is mischaracterized because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the narrative that I hear a lot is that, okay, well, Bretton Woods, in Bretton Woods in 1944, um, basically the powers that be, you know, set up this system, which was kind of like a Trojan horse. It basically got the world addicted to trade in U.S. dollars because, hey, it's going to be backed by gold. But then, wait a second, 1971, the Nixon shock, Nixon abandons convertibility to gold, and all of a sudden, oh, but 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 the rest of the world already has no choice. They're already hooked on the dollar system. So, so you know, I, I know that I'm oversimplifying the narrative, but that's kind of where I hear a lot of the U.S. dollar naysayers going, um, going with that. Uh, but 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 I think you have to study history a little bit and, and go back to the origins of the euro dollar system, right? Euro dollar system for those of those of, of your audience who might not know is basically the rise of uh, the use of us dollars in Europe and, and then now uh, the rest of the world, right. That are not mm. 
uh, uh, governed by U.S. banking laws, but that are also uh, that are also not uh, uh, at the at the time uh, governed by the backing of gold. Right. That happened. That happened starting in the 1950s, long before Nixon abandoned the gold convertibility um, uh, issue. Uh, and and why did that happen? Well, up until that point, up until uh, basically the the uh, four, mid 40s and 50s, the pound sterling was the global reserve currency um, of the world. But a number of things happened in the 1950s that essentially made the U.S. dollar look like a better alternative. And and then and so the the culminating thing was that well. There was a uh, Britain was facing a domestic inflation problem, and part of their cure to the inflation problem was instituting capital controls on sterling. And and so even though the capital controls were in place for something like sixteen months, the damage had been done because when they did that, um, there was it. There was basically a a flight to U.S. dollars. Uh, people wanted to invoice and transact in another liquid currency, and uh, people started transacting in, in in euro dollars, which meant that there was a there was trade in dollars starting to happen that was well beyond the gold-backed dollars. You see what I mean? So, mm. so when I when when you when you look at that and you say, well, wait a second. It's interesting because if that happened, then where if 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 the endogenous strength of the dollar at the time wasn't truly gold, in fact, when Nixon abandoned uh, gold convertibility, you could even say that he kind of freed uh, uh, the world from being anchored to the dollar and and basically allowed widespread adoption of the U.S. dollar as a fiat currency, right? Mm. Um, and and so um, it's interesting because I'm I'm reading a book right now by Perry Merlin called uh, Money and Empire, and he and he's talking about he's talking about the rise of the dollar system as viewed through uh, the personal lens of Charles Kindleberger, Kindleberger, right, who was instrumental in basically shaping that system. And um, there 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 is a great uh, quote that um, uh, I wanted to read. So, you know, the, the, the narrative that um, this, the balance of payments deficit is, is the death knell for the U.S. dollar, I find it interesting that Charles Kindleberger um, decades ago said that, quote, the U.S. was not so much running a balance of payments deficit, rather merely supplying the world's demand for dollars as a liquid reserve. And so, all right, so coming back to your question, right, the reason why I think the military advantage and then the petrodollar system uh, arise from these endogenous factors mm. is because, okay, let's talk about the military advantage for a second. The, the geography, ultimately, I think, informs our military advantage, because when you think about the U.S. and our 800 bases around the world, What's enabled us to focus our defense spending and military spending on being able to <clears throat> project power far and wide? Because we have an impregnable geography in terms of our homeland. We've got oceanic buffers where the 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 enemy has to would have to cross, you know, three thousand mile three to five thousand miles of ocean 
right, on the east and west. And then we've got friendlies to the north and south. And then, and then of course, we, you know, you talked about the arable land, you talked about the river, the waterways, et cetera, right? So that innate geographic advantage, which by the way, China lacks those advantages and has to spend serious national treasure on one belt, one road to recreate what we have innately, right? So, so it is, it's, a, it's a much, much uh, bigger uphill battle for China to recreate those uh, advantages uh, and try to have the ability to, 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 to uh, have force projection, right? And, and they, they just don't have that. I mean, there's much ado talk is made about, you know, their, uh, you know, their, their Navy, for instance, right? That has more ships now than the U.S., et cetera, and how the U.S. has let its Navy go, uh, go into disrepair. But look, the U.S. Navy has about 275 ships totaling about 4.6 million tons. The Chinese Navy has about, I don't know, 380 ships, but it totals about 1.8 million tons. So that tells you that they have a huge flotilla of small boats that are that maybe give them green water superiority within the first island chain, but they can't force project outside of the first island chain. Our Navy is a blue water Navy, um, and that was only enabled by the fact that we don't need to patrol our green waters, our coastal waters, mm. in the same way they do. Right. So that hopefully that answers your question on the military and why that ultimately is an endogenous factor. Yeah. The, and then and then similarly, I would say that the petrodollar system is I, I wanted to re, recall that uh, that uh, that history of the rise of the euro dollar banking system, because that that's kind of um, uh, the, the the reason for the for the petrodollar system, too. Yes, it was originally set up you know, as, as a top down construct, but I kind of, I kind of want to, uh, uh, sort of, uh, shed some light on the fact that look every day, the, the, the dollar has to earn its exorbitant privilege because if it were not the most liquid, uh, you know, currency, uh, with the, the strongest military with, um, you know the most liquid bond markets with the 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 most trusted rule of law the uh, uh you know and and all of these other endogenous factors were it not for all of those factors the market would organically vote it out right and you're you're seeing uh and, but but I want to I want to caution that Okay, it, you, it's there are chinks in the armor, right? The the chinks in the armor are that, and, and we go into this in our paper that there in in recent years, especially I would say like the last you know call it fifteen years, um, the U.S. has gone kind of sanctions crazy, right? Especially in the in the uh, in the area of financial sanctions. And I read a great book um, by Agatha uh, Damare. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her last name. It's called Backfire. Um, and it talks about the different forms of financial and economic coercion. And financial sanctions, especially when it comes to some of the more um, um, extraterritorial secondary sanctions that um, embroil our allies, um, have led to even 
for instance, the euro, or sorry, the eurozone, to try to figure out ways to skirt, say, Iranian sanctions, right? Mm. So, so, so these are things that um, you know, you know, a lot of the U.S. dollar naysayers will say, oh, will point to you know the weaponization of the of the U.S. dollar um, as as a as a uh, sort of uh, abuse of that exorbitant privilege and why this will lead to the unwinding of the of the US uh, hegemonic system. I wouldn't go so far as to say that because it you know you're when you're focused on for instance like defi and crypto right mm. a, a network effects um, have a lot to do with whether or not an ecosystem is going to survive as the winner as the winner take all. There's nothing that even com- remotely compares to the the inherent network effects of the existing uh, system that's in place. But that's not to say that there, we're doing we as a country are pursuing certain policies that are encouraging um, uh, competition. Right? Mm. China, China, um, as we all know, is kind of leading the charge. Right? China is leading the charge on trying to uh, figure out ways how to supplant the dollar. Um, a lot has been made of, for instance, President Xi's recent visit to Saudi Arabia and trying to um, get Saudi Arabia to uh, uh, conduct its trade in Chinese um, um, renminbi, right? But number one, uh, nothing's been inked. Number two, uh, the total amount of oil that uh, Saudi Arabia supplies to China is 1.6 million barrels per day. That's one, roughly 1.6% of total global trade. So let's say that Saudi Arabia actually does that and does the entire, does its, uh, uh, conducts its entire trade in, in Chinese yuan. It would be a shot across the, the bow for sure, right? But it, it's, it's just, it, that by in and of itself is just not a significant factor. But I think the, here are the reasons why Saudi Arabia wouldn't do it, right? Despite Mohammed bin Salman's distaste for the current administration, right? I don't think he would want to risk putting all of their country's oil revenues to China in a non-convertible currency whose, um, uh, you know, underlying government just doesn't have the same uh you know rule of law characteristics as the us that it's not a coincidence that the saudi real itself is a hard dollar peg it's also not a coincidence that the the chinese yuan is a soft dollar peg mm. so so I, I think of it like this i this this is this is an analogy i like to use right so um they might, they very well might conduct part of their trade in Chinese renminbi to help out Xi and to allow Xi to basically um, not have to, um, uh, to to have some of uh, be able to use some uh, renminbi in in the oil trade. But think of it like this: from from Saudi's perspective, right? I'm going to use an Amazon. Um, uh, comparison. If you buy something on Amazon and you need to return it and you need to select whether or not you want your refund in terms of Amazon credit or get your money back, well, look, if it's 50 bucks, if it's 100 bucks, you're, you're going to be fine with like Amazon credit because you know that you're going to use it, 
right? But what if it's $5,000? You're going to want your fucking money back. Well, that's the way, right? So that's the way I think of like from, from, from Saudi's perspective. Okay, so if it's like a small amount and to, to keep one of my biggest customers happy, to, to give them a political win on the world stage, like, oh yeah, you know, I, I basically got this deal uh, from Saudi Arabia. Sure. But if I'm going to put my national treasure, am I going to risk it all in a currency that's non-convertible? That's experiencing a a huge property crisis, and and a country that is that has total opacity even in its amount of total debt load. There's no way. I, mm. I, I'm not. I'm not seeing that. So so let me ask you a question here. So we're talking about currency and geopolitics walk hand in hand, right? So let's say. I, I'm I'm with you. I, I I agree with you basically on all the points that you're making about the endogenous reasons for why the USD sits at the center of this global reserve currency system, right? People want people want dollars. Let's say there's like two ways that I could think about that that would benefit the United States, right? One, you could say, look, all of these things that we made us the reserve currency in the first place, we want to reinvest in, right? So obviously we can't reinvest in more arable land, et cetera. But what we can do is like use you know, the demand for dollars and the ability to issue U.S. debt globally as a way to continue to fund, like invest in our national infrastructure, uh, in our industry, strengthen our property laws, do put reinvest in the side of the assets that, that people want. Then there's kind of this other bucket where we say, you know, this dependency that the rest of the world has on dollars, that's an important geopolitical tool, right? And that's what I would kind of more broadly lump in sort of the the sanctions bucket, right? So when people are either acting not in the best interest of the United States or doing things that we don't like, we sort of use it as a as a punishment. How would you weigh how the U.S. should kind of move between those two uh, those two benefits? Well, reading um, Agatha's book uh, Backfire um, really uh, got me thinking on okay, there's sanctions are 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 useful, but rarely achieve their end goals, right? If, if you define the end goals as real regime change. And the problem is that most of these sanctions have, used, have been levied against autocratic powers where there is a, there, there is a lack of transmission mechanism between the uh, discomfort that the sanctions might inflict on the, on the population and and how that how that population what that population might do to the regime because under a, an autocratic iron-fisted re- mm. regime there's nothing that the population can do all the financial sanctions will do in the end is that they harden the local population's um, hatred of the US but and and the 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 underlying government is still every bit in, as as the, the underlying government is still in control, so when you t- when you talk about like history of sort of failed sanctions from a from a inability to uh, to actually cause regime change, you can look at Cuba, you can look at Iran, you can look at North Korea. It goes the list goes on and on and on. Where um, uh, economic coercion has actually been more effective is when. Um, they have gone hand in hand with certain export controls 
um, and certain industrial policies. I view sanctions. So, so, so to, to kind of extend this into my own thinking, I kind of view um, financial sanctions as uh, almost purely reactive and coercive policies, mm. but, but um, uh, there are other tools out there, right? Uh, and, and two of the tools that we talk about in our paper are more proactive policies like industrial policies. And in, in particular, we can talk about how, you know, in the, the, the oil and gas industry, for instance, uh, policymakers can really learn from the semiconductor industry and apply some of those lessons and the things that they've done right in the oil and gas industry. So, for instance, the semiconductor industry, right, um, the policymakers, it, you know, with, with this CHIPS Act and also with, um, you know, uh, export con uh, key export controls and sanctions have actually uh, – I actually think that uh, what the Biden administration has done um, uh, and also what the Trump administration uh, started with some of the sanctions against Huawei and all these things, I think these are actually these these sanctions were actually effective in basically um, cutting off certain uh, uh, critical path uh, uh, components and supplies in the semiconductor industry to China. But at the same time, I, I applaud the CHIPS Act because it is it is a recognition, albeit a late recognition, that our the seeding of our dominance in that industry is primarily in the fabrication space. Mm. Right. We have seeded a lot of our fabrication capabilities to Taiwan. Now, look, Taiwan is not China, um, but and, and Taiwan Semiconductor being the world's essentially foundry. Um, is a is of key geopolitical importance. Ch Taiwan is not China, but that's the reason why China covets Taiwan. One of the key reasons why China covets Taiwan, I think. Right. So yeah. so and and when you look at how um, uh, China, sorry, how Taiwan, and now how China is subsidizing their semiconductor industries. Our CHIPS Act is still paltry in terms of the tax subsidies. I think that, you know, the headline number is something like $52 billion. But, you know, China, China's um, um, subsidy to Huawei alone is something like $75 billion. They have this, uh, there's this other, uh, there's this other um, uh, company there, which is kind of, it's a private company, but it's really a front for state, state run subsidies called uh, Tsinghua. Um, uh, Tsinghua uh, Unipolar or something. I can't remember the exact name, but it, um, there's a great book that Chris Miller recently wrote called Chip War that talks about how this private company um, is basically a front for another 22 billion of state-led subsidies for the semiconductor, indus semiconductor industry, right? And, and he talks about, Chris Miller, the, the author, talks about how she has basically said, okay, he, he's using a very martial terms and saying, you know what, let's call forth the assault. We need, China wants to become, have the capabilities of TSMC and is willing to make the, the, the investments. So look, our, our policymakers are recognizing that and are taking some steps comparatively tentative steps, but at least are going in the right direction.
when I look at oil and gas, I'm kind of incredulous at how opposite it is, right? So, 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 so ju just a couple of stats real quick, right? So I, I think a couple of high level stats are, are very important to compare and contrast because when you talk about um, the, wor the world of semiconductors, for instance, you are talking about, here, here are some critical choke points and dependencies, right? So Taiwan supplies 37% of global chips, 41% of semiconductors, 90% of all advanced chips, right? Um, mm. China's currently only at 15% and, and uh, US only at, currently only at, at 12%, right? Now, according to Chris Miller in, uh, in Chip War, um, if you, if you if you look at the overall um, semiconductor supply chain, including design, including semiconductor equipment, everything, then um, China's number, uh, I, I believe uh, uh, Taiwan's number falls all the way down to something like 6%. And the U.S., believe it or not, is at 39%. And, and when you look at the entire supply chain, because the U.S. and the semiconductor industry still uh, controls critical choke points. Like, for instance, it has about um, you know 50% share in semiconductor equipment. It's got 75% share in semiconductor design software. So the U.S. still has critical choke points that and and some of these export controls that I talked about earlier are targeting these specific choke points that mm. China is totally totally dependent on. Right. Mm. And so so but 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 even so we are taking appropriate proactive steps to shore up our weaknesses there and to tar and to to kind of uh uh target uh, uh the the china's vulnerabilities now let's talk let's talk about oil now can i just give one plug actually uh yeah. the founding story of tsmc is amazing it's this guy morris amazing. Kang founded it yes it's a super cool story so uh, there's a great there's a great podcast called Acquired, which does a like three hour deep dive on TSMC. If anyone's just a nerd about it and interested, I highly recommend that. Podcast. Oh, I, I, okay. I, I would like to listen to that. It is worth listening to. It's a great show. Awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, so, yeah. so look, in, in, in OPEC's case, and now let's throw, throw some stats at this, right? So in OPEC's case, you've got uh, uh, OPEC supplying about 40% of global oil. China, of course, supplies nothing right they they uh, consume everything that they produce and then some right they're a huge uh, net importer but look the u.s is basically the largest single supplier at like something like 12 and a half percent of total uh, uh barrel oil equivalents right now right so so and and russia and saudi each supply roughly 11 percent so what what i find amazing is that you know i i this is something i wrote in the paper i said look a, this blind focus on ESG and EVs is basically threatening to shift our 40% dependency on OPEC plus, but where we still command the leading role of, uh, of world production at 12.5% to an 85% dependency on China's rare earth refining capacity. So like in what universe is that a sensible risk reward trade-off from a national security standpoint? So and, and 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 the 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 policies that we're undertaking. So everything from canceling, for instance, Keystone. I'll tell you. I'll go and I'll, I'll tell you in a little bit why that's important. Um, to essentially, um, you know, not. I mean, 
the la lack of subsidization of oil and gas is one thing, but the policies uh, currently are overtly hostile with like th the threats of windfall profits taxes and even threats of export bans, right? Um, export bans, I've, I've written at length uh, on Twitter about um, how something like that would be very, very dangerous. Uh, you know, the, the export ban narrative is that, hey, we've had this um, export ban in place from 1975 to 2015, and we were fine with it. So why not, you know, essentially pursue a, uh, you know, a, a policy of autarky and, and basically, you know, ban exports. And that way we're going to have, um, we're going to have uh, cheap domestic uh, gasoline prices. That's, that's kind mm. of the narrative. And it was even publicly floated by the current department of energy. Right. Mm. But, but when you, when, when, but when you delve deeper into the weeds, you realize, wait a second. Now, the 1975 export ban was set up because at the time um, there was a 1973 Arab oil embargo. At the time, U.S. conventional production was already on the wane. So when we set up an export ban for 40 years, it really didn't matter because we didn't have any oil to export. Okay, <laughs> it didn't matter. It was all it was all politics, right? Yeah. But but here's the thing: like you, you can't discount American ingenuity because the oil shale revolution kind of started around like 2009, 2010, and then by you know 2015, when the export ban got lifted, um, it was actually a recognition that well, wait a second, our refiners have you know because of the uh, dependency of middle eastern crude have been all um uh tooled to process heavier blends of oil right um but the oil that we are producing from shale is light sweet and so we can't use all of the light sweet that we produce so let's uh, repeal the export ban, which is a smart thing, because by repealing the export ban, it allowed the the uh, U.S. shale to really open the spigots and export the excess of what we cannot, that our refiners still cannot fully consume. Mm. But but get this, the amount of imports from the Middle East didn't materially change from before the repeal of the export ban and after the repeal of the export ban. Because we need those heavy grades. So, mm. and by the way, where else can we get some of those heavy grades? Canada. But what did we do? We canceled the Keystone Pipeline. Mm. Okay. So, 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 so if you, if you, if we actually banned exports, it would be a disaster, not just for the oil and gas sector here, it would be a disaster for the domestic consumer because we would actually have to import oil and Brent, which would be just spiking. And then and then it would at the same time bankrupt our oil. So I, I just yeah. give these examples as that we have innate advantages here, far more, I would, uh, in, in a way, far more than the innate advantages that we have, for instance, in semiconductors. And yet we are, we're, we're doing, uh, taking the right steps in semiconductors, but we are completely taking the wrong steps when it comes to energy policy. Going the wrong way. Going Michael, the wrong way. So let, let me see if I've summed up your the the parts the, the point of your thesis basically so far. So USD is the the 
very privileged place that the United States has in the global reserve currency system is inextricably linked, right, to hegemony for the United States. There's a certain reflexivity there, right? There's a very natural, organic, endogenous reason why the rest of the world uses the US dollar. It gives us certain privilege that's reflexive on the way up. But also, you know, if we shoot ourselves in the foot, it could be bad on the way down. We have we have to earn that privilege every day. We have to earn it, exactly. Absolutely. So, so we in some places, you know, that kind of intersects with industrial policy. In some places we're doing all right, maybe in the in the world of semiconductors, space of energy, especially oil, not so much. Now, one, one of the other wrenches in there is the this relationship in between energy and inflation and how that's throwing a further wrench, right, in in everything that's going on. I know your your idea of inflation, right? Everything kind of started being short energy, right? And that has kind of crept into all of these stickier components. We're record I'm kind of just curious because we're recording this on the 12th and CPI just just came out today. But uh, I'd, I'd be curious, do you do you think CPI like inflation uh, further complicates things? Is it a small, you know, bucket of noise here and it really isn't going to impact the great power competition? Like what, if any, relationship does uh, oil have in everything that we're talking about? Well, so, so, so I think this is where I, I, I offer an interesting uh, twist to a geopolitical uh, use of the dollar. So, mm. so, so I'm going to caveat this by saying that, you know, I, I, have a, I have a big, I personally have a big um, long-term bet in oil uh, through a private equity that I don't trade or anything. It's a long-term bet, but that, but that the reason why I made that long-term bet, it was, uh, and I made it back in, you know, 2016, 2017 era during the depths of the oil bear market, but it was a contrary bet because I, even then I was recognizing that there, there's been a lack of long-term investment in the industry. And over the last five years, that's only been exacerbated, right? total lack and hostility, lack of investment and hostility towards the towards the sector. So from a long term perspective, that makes me very, very bullish. Um, the the commodity itself, right? But but my uh, advocacy of proactive industrial policy, you realize, is completely talking against my book, right? Because mm -hmm. what I'm saying is that what the US needs to do is what it's currently not doing. It needs to invest not only in exploration and production, it needs to retool and expand its refining networks. In other words, the US to really, to really have um, uh, true sort of energy independence ought to uh, be encouraging our industry to, to, and subsidizing the oil and gas industry to be to continue being a leading producer and and then when it comes to specific objectives of defanging say the russian economy the best way to do it actually is to flood the world with oil mm. the best way to do it is to flood the world with oil it's not so much that okay we've got all we're trying all these like sanctions and embargoes and whatnot Right. But oil, Russian oil flow hasn't stopped. Right. It hasn't stopped. And the best way to, 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 to deal a blow there is also through lower oil prices and flooding the world with oil. But I'm, I'm, I'm kind of talking against my, my long term book. Uh, right. But but the reason why I made that long term bet is because I, I see the wheels of change. there grind very, very slowly. And the world 
has has uh, got has transfixed itself on this ESG narrative. The problem, the fundamental problem that I see with the ESG uh, narrative is that it is it is ascribing again tying this back to chips now it is ascribing moore's law dynamics to the world of moving molecules energy transitions are not going to be like the internet uh transition where you know moving bits can where, where you know can move at the at the at the speed of moore's law you cannot move molecules in the same way and so so by starving, by starving investment, long-term investment in hydrocarbons, and basically trying to push the world to prematurely into a transition to EVs, we're going to be, and I think, in the next sometime within this decade, I think, into a very, very precarious position where um, there there might be more. Um, uh, demand, demand. Uh, sorry, demand. Even in a a uh, sort of tepid global economy, could exceed total spare capacity. Right. That's right. So so that's not to say that it, uh, and there's this whole reflect complicated reflexive relationship too now because because uh, I it's my view that oil um, uh, was what kickstarted this entire bout of inflation that we're experiencing. Um, and, and it then um, sort of bled into uh, other areas, other stickier core components of inflation. And so it's kind of ironic that, you know, I, I actually um, uh, wrote a uh, piece along with um, uh, Alex Dahl, who I know from Twitter, who we, we since since the summer essentially both of us have been actually bearish on oil prices, but from a cyclical standpoint standpoint. And I'm not going to speak for Alex, but speaking for myself, uh, I'm long term bullish, but in the short term I'm bearish because of this negative feedback loop that the the Fed and world central bankers are now all on the warpath to try to fight and stymie this inflation, mm. which goes back to what I was alluding to earlier about uh, potentially uh, the uh, strong dollar as a potential geopolitical weapon. Mm. What I'm saying here is that in the name of fighting inflation, right, um, the a strong U.S. dollar can also accomplish certain geopolitical objectives mm. because we are at a point in time where the transmission mechanisms for tight monetary policy are on uneven uh, throughout the world the rest of the world's economies are not as well equipped as the u.s economy at this point in time to uh continue to hike so when you when you talk about the eurozone you know yet and, and yesterday's thread i talked about uh how i i named a uh I listed a couple of different factors, right? So, for instance, um, I talked about how, you know, the Eurozone has been kind of given a pass because of Mother Nature and benign benign weather prices, but we all know about their energy dependence, right? Um, uh, another another uh, thing is when you look at household debt to income uh, ratios, I, I posted this really interesting chart that showed that, 
you know, the U.S. Uh, uh, from this perspective is the lowest, uh, at least amongst like the G7, right? Um, when you look at uh, another chart uh, that I think is really interesting is when you look at the percentage of variable rate mortgages, the U.S., again, is the lowest in the world because we've, we, you know, we have uh, encouraged home ownership through having longer term uh, mortgages. But when, when you look at, for instance, Japan, Australia, Canada, all these countries that have very, very high uh, percentages of floating rate mortgages, these countries uh, have natural limits to keeping monetary policy excessively tight because they absolutely crush their, their household sector, right? And then, of mm. course, like the big, the, the big elephant in the room here is, is China, right? So the, the, the fourth chart that I put in my thread yesterday was talking about how, you know, the central bank balance sheets are so bloated because when, you, when everybody criticizes the Fed and says that, you know, the Fed has been, you know, buying, you know, through its quantitative easing program, has been buying all these, you know, treasuries and whatnot. Well, the, the, the U.S. Fed's uh, total central bank assets as a percentage of GDP is only 34%. You compare that to the BOE's 41%, the ECB 60%, and then the BOJ is 120%. Right. So so there are there are and then the, the, what's con, conspicuously absent in that G4 comparison is China, because China situation, I've, I've been finding it very difficult to find a true apples to apples comparison, because there, there are all these like um, uh, obfuscating dynamics between uh, China state banks and the PBOC. But uh, uh, Peter Zahan has this very, very interesting chart in his latest book, uh, uh, where he where, where he basically estimates Chinese, you know, private credit relative to the rest of the world, and it is just off the charts. Yeah. So what I what I what I to tie it all together, I'm basically saying that you know, I, I, in November I wrote another uh, piece about I call I call the current dynamic the geopolitical mosh pit because central banks are in this sort of every man for himself dynamic where you know there there are different uh uh domestic incentives in each country and because of the, all of these various sort of straitjacketing mechanisms that are th that the other sort of uh competitors in the great power competition face relative to the US we're at this point where a strong U.S. dollar doesn't necessarily hurt ourselves that much. It will feedback in some ways, right? Because a strong U.S. dollar, um, uh, you know, discourages exports. But we were never a big exporting nation to begin with. In fact, there's there's one more chart that I uh, have in my paper that talks about how it, it shows how the U.S. Uh, in term, uh, exports as a per, uh, uh, are the U.S. is far less dependent on exports than most other global economies, right? So a strong dollar policy also accomplishes this geopolitical objective of sowing chaos. Remember I talked about how yeah. sowing chaos is a lot cheaper than defending against it. Yeah. So, yeah. Hello, hello everyone. Thank you all for listening to On The Margin. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up about a conference that we have coming up in the new year called 
permissionless. I'm sure most of you have all been there last year. Uh, it is the cultural event of the year. We had over 5,500 people down in Palm Beach. This year, we are moving to Austin, Texas. You know what they say about Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> uh, so last year, we had a really great lineup of speakers. We had two co-founders of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bhatt. We had Chris Dixon. We had some of the folks that have been on the show a whole bunch of times. Jim Bianco, Dan Tapiero. Just a phenomenal lineup of speakers, and you can expect the same this year. If you use Margin 10, you'll get 10% off on a ticket. Again, that's Margin 10, because I love you guys so much. Click the link at the bottom of the show notes. Hope to see you there in person. I've got one one question before you before I kind of want to end on big themes and big topics here that we've discussed. This dollar wrecking ball. So I totally understand the connection there about how it can be a geopolitical tool, right? So for our, let's maybe if we don't want to say adversaries, our adversaries are unfriendlies like China, right? A strong US dollar, especially one, you know, the combination of the dollar plus the the necessary the necessity to buy dollars or to buy oil in dollars, right? You swing that around. I'm sure China is very worried about importing commodity inflation, right? Like not to mention the rest of just access to their trade and their reserves, all that kind of stuff. The problem is when you've got this really powerful wrecking ball swinging around the world, it's a little bit of a blunt tool, right? And it's already starting to hit into some of our allies, right? Over in the Eurozone, Japan. And ourselves. And ourselves, right? And ourselves. There there is a negative feedback loop ultimately in using using this tool. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's my, I guess, observation. I have a... I have a question for you on, you know, when when it comes to industrial policy, there was a, it, you actually started to alluded to this when you were talking about the quote from Perry Merling, but there's, have you ever heard of Dutch disease or resource curse, this concept? Yes. Yes. So basically the idea for the audience is if in countries, there was originally called Dutch disease because at some point in like the 16 or 1700s, the Netherlands found this enormous, uh, you know, reserves of oil and gas basically. And, um, and they, and they started to, and it was, it actually ended up being a net negative for the entire country because like a very small class basically started to gather this up and export it, which meant that it strengthened the currency. It benefited a very small group of people, right? The exporters of that, of that commodity, but then it strengthened the currency. It, it was you, the rest of the country wasn't able to do exports for that reason and ended up being sort of a net negative. And that's why they called it resource curse. There was a, a com- people have made that comparison, and it's kind of exactly what Perry Merling was saying, which was as the issuer of the global reserve currency, we have an obligation to the rest of the world to provide an enormous amount of dollars. So I agree with that observation that the deficit that the United States produces on a yearly basis mostly has to do with that dynamic, right? The rest of the world needs dollars in order to get trade. The only way they can really accumulate dollars in a, you know, in a, in a reliable way is to run a trade surplus, which means we have to run a deficit. So if you almost apply the analogy of resource curse, there's a small industry, which honestly largely has been kind of finance, right? Which exports dollars. But then what that has resulted in is us, it's hurt the rest of our economy, our kind of core manufacturing parts of the US economy. Uh, the Honestly, like the middle class of America our ability to export. And that part of the industrial base has been hollowed out, right? So that's a connection that I've, that that metaphor really hit with me a, li- a while ago. Fascinating. Be, that's really interesting. Really, I'd be really curious. Interesting. Yeah, what your take is on that. I have to think about that more. Um, I think it's a really interesting analogy. Um, I, I think that um, maybe it's not quite the same because the, 
the dollar, the, the, the part that I, the part of that argument that I find a little bit more tenuous is the, 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 the fact that our, the, our resource is the exportation of dollars. Um, mm. you, you know what I mean? That's, that's the part that's a little bit more tenuous. It's not quite the same as saying, okay, well, you know what? Um, Saudi Arabia has oil and is, and, and as a result of that natural endowment knows nothing, ha- has no incentive to d- do anything else but to export oil. I don't right. quite see it exactly that way, but I, I, I can, I can see some of the, some of the similarities. I, I would say that the, I would say that the um, hollowing out of the manufacturing base has a has has a bit more to do with pretty bad industrial policies on our part, and the I mean part of, part of it also goes to the idea that you know we have at at our core a capitalist market driven system, whereas um, uh, some of the other big competitors in the great power competition, especially China are state-led economies, right? Where they can direct um, spending and subsidization in certain industries and keep them unfairly competitive, right? And so that, I would say that that has, has allowed the, the great hollowing out of the manufacturing base because our, our, com- our companies in pursuit of profits naturally fa- uh, gravitate towards the cheapest costs of labor and yeah. in a global system right that that's where that's where um uh that's where it flows but i think the i think what we are talking about right now though is that we are seeing somewhat of a fraying of that sort of globalist system and some of the reshoring initiatives um certainly and you know specifically in the in the chips act in that in that critical industry are are taking steps in the right direction to kind of correct some of those some of those problems. Yeah, I I, I agree with that's a really fair point on industrial policy. And there's a great I've referenced it so many times on the show. I'll again find it linked in the show notes. But uh, Sir James Goldsmith gave a great speech about China entering the World Trade uh, Organization a while ago, and it was basically a he he was advocating that that was not the right move, at least for developed nations and it's pretty fascinating to go back and watch yeah. i think he's been pretty safely vindicated and it's very sure. interesting to hear the it's sort of a debate live that i think happens on charlie rose so you should hear the counter arguments as well it's pretty i funny. mean i would I, I i would say that 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 was probably one of the biggest uh sort of foreign policy miscalculations um of the last several decades that our country has made um yeah. absolutely right yeah yeah um, last point on this, because I just it's on this on the idea that it's it's not doesn't always apply resource curse to money. There was a there was a book that Niall Ferguson wrote called The Ascent of Money, which if you have it is a voracious reader, you'd probably find relatively interesting. It kind of traces the history of like money and currency as a precious metal, and then he goes into debt in the Italian kind of banking age, right, like Florence, mm. and then he goes into equity, and he ends with this chapter. It. You'd actually probably really like it on what he calls Chimerica in this relationship in between yeah. China and America, that reflexive relationship there. But he he do, he actually begins with an analogy about resource curse from when Portugal goes over to and they find this enormous silver mine in the Andes. Mm. He actually mm. also uses that as an example for, it's bad for two reasons, because one, it was actually so much money, it hampered innovation and it, it encouraged sort of rent-seeking yeah. behavior. But also because they had so much silver, 
that money transitioned from a precious metal in the form of silver to credits and entries on the ledger. And they couldn't they couldn't wrap their minds around that transformation because they had so much access to. So it's just an interesting, interesting it's an interesting, interesting right. idea to delve into. All right. Okay. I've got Great I've got another, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's one of my favorite. Jason gave it to me. So my co-founder Jason deserves the credit. Um, I have I have another question for you on this. And this is where I want to get into the just your thoughts like high level on the power struggle and almost your your personal thoughts on how you'd like to see it play out or where you think we are. But one Here's where I totally agree. First of all, I'm in New York. I was born in Boston. I am an American. I'll be honest, like I it's impossible for me to approach this without a little bit of bias. Like I I know that there are problems with the United States, but I am very much in the camp, to use your phrase, it's the cleanest of the dirty shirts, right? Like I think I I think it is a great country still. We're certainly not perfect, but honestly, when I like look out into the world at the alternatives, some of the great powers that are challenging us, I would not want a world that's controlled by by China in its current state, you know, no, nothing against it. It's just, it's more the CCP really than anything else. Absolutely. hundred percent agree. One thing that I've thought about is the reason why I believe that is because we've set up our constitution and our culture and our set of, there are these like structural things that we believe in and implemented in the United States that sort of keep us honest, right? Like we believe that the United States can't come in and just take your property, right? We believe in, and it's enshrined there in the constitution and people are kind of nuts about the constitution, but rightly so freedom of speech, uh, you know, freedom of assembly, freedom to the press, all of this stuff. So one thing that worries me a little bit with some of this talk about USD primacy is it tends to the enforcing body of USD primacy in the government is really pushing pretty aggressively for lack of financial privacy and these two these two arguments are getting swirled together which is we need the united states dollar to be at the center of everything but at the same time we want to track and monitor all your movements so this is where crypto kind of comes into a little bit because i i you know whether or not you're a supporter of it i think what it's saying at the core is that like we don't want that surveilled and there needs to be some kind of check on the power here, right? Because the whole history of the United States is going from small state controlled thing to something that looks more like an empire, right? I understand this not in that form right now, but like that's my my one like just thought or question to you would be, are there logical limits on the amount of power that we want to grant the United States, either through dollars, dollar primacy or, or whatever it is so that we don't eventually become the threat that we're trying to face? Does that... Does that all make that was sort of a rambling thought? Does that make sense or resonate? Yeah, with that? I, I I think I I, I get the, the 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 big gist of the question, and I'll I'll kind of I, I kind of have an oblique answer to it, which mm -hmm. is that I, I I think ultimately you know going back to the 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 endogenous uh, pillars that we were talking mm -hmm. about, right, and geography specifically, I've actually thought that the the fact that if there's any sort of uh, Dutch disease, right? I actually would say that the the Dutch disease has to do with the fact that we are so blessed from a natural ge geographic advantage perspective that it's allowed us to have a lot of policy fuck ups, um, and 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 right and and so in yeah. a way in a yeah. in a way if you think about it. I, I actually think that our system of government, our federalist system of market-driven government, I think can only succeed 
because of those natural geographic advantages. Because I, I think that if, 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 you, if, you, if you think about the rest of the world and its relative lack of those natural advantages, I think when you take when you take a country like China, for instance, where you know they are literally naturally short a lot a lot of these geographic advantages that we talked about, whether it's like you know waterways, um, you know arable land, it's a coastline, deep water capability, all, all this stuff, right? Um, it it requires a very very strong centrally led state led mandate to try to hold it all together. It's yeah. like Han Solo's Millennium Falcon. It's a bucket of bolts. You got to like, you know, you got to hold, you, you need a very strong top yeah. down structure to kind of hold the shit together because, right? Because the, the natural state of the world is to go towards uh, entropy <laughs> and, yeah. and, and without all of these natural advantages, you need that, you need that autocratic system of controls. And so I think that's why, you know, relating it to your question of like, you know, uh, uh, cryptocurrencies and CBDCs and the digital yuan and things like that, I, 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 I see what they're trying to do with it, right? I, I've, I see the, the, again, these are the, 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 do, the U.S. dollar naysaying arguments about, oh, you know, China's uh, rolled out this pilot program to 300 million people, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're so far ahead with CBDCs, blah, blah, blah. But to your point, will our um, sort of, uh, you know, market-driven federalist system allow, will, will the population allow basically a, a, a digital dollar that basically supplants the existing banking system where the U.S. government, the Fed, can... Um, uh, know exactly where all of our purchases are are going. I don't know that. I don't know that that would happen here. Um, I w- I would say that you know if 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 we do adopt a CBDC, it would probably be at a different layer where it, you know it doesn't. We 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 would still have the existing banking system. Maybe the maybe the layer of extraction is at the stops with the banks, so that. There is a buffer between the banking system and which who who remain trusted intermediaries uh, re- remain a buffer between us, the end consumer and citizen, and the government. You follow what I'm saying? Mm. I do, I do. But but, the, but 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 the PBOC is trying to. It sounds like they're trying to circumvent that layer entirely. Yeah, and, they are. You know, and that you know, it's. I mean, even if you just watch. Even if you just look at how China handled COVID and lockdowns differently than the United States, right? And exactly. Precisely. We caught a lot of we caught a lot of flack for that in the beginning, yep. but frankly, like I'd far rather be in the United States right now than China. They're still locking down over there. Hundred percent. I, I, I said this at the time. Insanity. I said I said there was so much uh, uh, like pushback and flack that the United States got for our ineffective COVID response, and I'm like, okay, the problem that I think people don't, aren't really buying is that. We have a federalist system. In, our, right. in a federalist system, um, you're not going to be able to have an autocratic response unless you declare martial law and forbid travel across state lines. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, the the 
the point though that I was trying to for better and for better and for worse, right? For 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 better and for worse, and <clears throat> but generally better, I would say, generally better. <laughs> generally, generally better, I think. And the you know powers get ceded to governments in crises. You know, you, the, usually what ends up happening, right? The reason why I think there's actually an autocratic or centralizing force to governments over great periods of time is when times are good. Citizenry, it's very easy for citizenry to say, I, I don't want the government involved in thing X, Y, or Z. This is the classic political phrase, like never let a good crisis go to waste, right? Something happens, all of those things, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, rears its its head again. People say, I want safety and security over everything else. I'll cede personal liberties. And then that government's like generally gather force over time. You can see that force in our financial system, by the way, like the history of like national banks, the first and second national bank in the United States, and now we. Oh, have I listened. I listened to Jack's. Uh, that was that was a great episode that Jack. I listened Marley to it like yeah. three times. That I keep great. referring to it, but I thought it was phenomenal. Yeah. But yeah. even outside of central bank, you look at like savings and loans get rolled up to banks, and then banks. You know, there are you know hundreds of regional banks, and now there are like six bulge bracket banks with that have all the assets in the U.S. So there's there's sort of a natural gravity towards uh, centralization and consolidation that I get. I guess the point I'm the one point I'm trying to make here is that. What part of what makes the U.S. great? I think part of what I like about the United States is like a healthy mistrust of government. We do maintain some of those things, and I want to be careful not to cede too much ground. Right, saying because I hear you, I'm I'm with you. Like I, I I understand that there's a power competition coming between the U.S. and China. I just think we want to go in with clear eyes and say like let's not panic and give a bunch of power to the United States that they don't need to succeed in the power competition. That was the that was the kind of point I was think I was trying to land. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. I I I I agree with you, and I and I and I recognize. Look, I'm I'm a I'm a free market uh, kind of guy. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm a free markets guy at the at the end of the at the end of the road, and I'm I'm so therefore like it's it it seems kind of incongruent for me to say that hey you know what we need some industrial policies like subsidization of certain industries, but yet. The, the 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 problem I see here is that it's um um it, you, in a way you kind of have to adapt with the times and fight fire with fire right um yeah. because because the, the, what our adversaries are very very adept at is recognizing that we have a federalist market driven system and there are things that are structurally more difficult for us to do like having a cohesive uh, industrial policy. I don't know if you I mean in that I thought I thought that I thought Chris Miller's chip war book was great because it painted the history and the evolution of the semiconductor industry. There yeah. was and, and, and I think in the uh, 90s there was an attempt at having some sort of cohesive industrial policy through this group called Semitech. But it, it was a complete abject failure. It just didn't work. It, it, it was it, Semitech's goal was to try to have some sort of, you know, cooperation between between the different players but it just doesn't it didn't work it's very hard to have that kind of that kind of centralization in our naturally market driven uh structure right because we are our our for better or for worse in general i would say for better our economy is predicated against like the bare knuckled fight of competition and that's what that's what that's what's made us strong as a country but what I what I really can't stand though is a going you know even if we didn't do any subsidization 
at least not stand in the way with overt hostility towards towards like critical industries like what we're doing in oil and gas that's that i call that anti-subsidization we're actually hamstringing uh, a a key area of of competitive strength unnecessarily i'm i'm with you on that i you know it's i i kind of feel the same way that you i've i've tried to develop internally a cohesive framework or way of thinking about this but it's very difficult to do because like even so i big i told you before this i was a classics major so i love looking at rome and i'm pretty familiar with that like empire I love that transition and everything by the, by yeah, the way I, by, by, by the way look at the name of my company and, yeah. and the logo okay so, there you right? go there Boom. you go yeah uh so <laughs> i love classics <laughs> there's a, there's a great book i also have been rec- it's called uh rubicon uh, Tom Holland wrote it. It's that transition period basically zooms right in on the 150 or so years of the transition from Roman Republic to to empire. But even then, even when they were a republic, they recognized the drawback of being uh, distributed in their form of governance, right? Like they they actually had in in great in times of great need, they would call upon a, a dictator to assume basically martial martial law or control of the city. And Interesting. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just it's just tough. The answer is like, it just kind of depends. There are like pros and cons and drawbacks and you can, you know, anyone can be a sort of history nerd and put their little cap on and look at periods of time where one system has fallen down because of reasons X, Y, and Z, right? Sparta, you know, they competed with Athens and they won, even though they weren't the open and democratic system, right? They were, they're super autocratic, pretty, pretty, wouldn't be looked on kindly. Their system of governance in, in today's day and age. So it's just, it's tough to, uh, I, I've had a really hard time synthesizing something that feels cohesive about how government should be run. It's, it, the honest answer is that it's really complicated. But, but yes. And, and but, and to your, to one of the points that you made earlier about how, um, you know, the, you know, for, for all the naysayers of the U.S. empire and, and our imperialistic tendencies, we've been a pretty, benevolent empire as empires go right i, I mean even if you take if when you when you take a look at like so for instance Bretton woods was our big uh was was our big win after world war ii it wasn't as if we went and plundered the countries of the vanquished right we helped rebuild europe through the marshall plan and in mm-hmm. so doing also uh, basically benefited uh, uh, Germany, right? Germany was the vanquished in World War II, but we helped rebuild their economy ultimately. Um, so, so um, when you when you look at when when people naysay uh, the U.S. and laud China's rise and say that you know you know China present china somehow as a as a more uh uh benevolent alternative i just can't see it i, I just can't see it i, I mean just from a you know from a sanctions point alone i think is interesting right from a sanctions point alone they've already shown again i i, I cite uh some reference to uh agatha demary's book on backfire but um in i think like in 2016 2017 you know, she cites how, you know, China has been essentially studying U.S. sanction legislation and has already uh, been using uh, their own sanctions against South Korea. So don't think for a minute that as much as 
the U.S. has weaponized the dollar, that the uh, that China wouldn't do the same or far far worse if they got you know uh, people hooked on using the yuan. I mean, the, the the thing for me about China and the yuan becoming the global reserve currency. I mean, they don't have an open capital account. I just don't. No. I I don't see how you get past that as a as as a as a holder. I, 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 I go, I go back to my Amazon analogy, my Amazon refund analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, hundred <laughs> um, percent. Michael, maybe we could. You know, I know we got to start to wind down here pretty soon. Can Can you give us? a status basically we haven't even really we've almost like talked around it this entire uh, podcast but like what is the state of the power competition in between china and the us it looks right now like i mean potentially we're fighting a proxy war in ukraine but certainly there's an economic power competition that's going on i think right out there in the open but you know we've had uh, folks like pippa malmgram on the show and she has kind of i detailed this idea that we're fighting world war 3 already it's just a competition mm. or war that looks very different from how we've thought about it in the past so can you give us a kind of a state of the union or update on like what is the power competition look like today where 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 do you think we might be might be headed i i definitely see there i mean there there are uh, big threats i'm not uh you know completely pollyanna on usa usa you know, full-blown Peter Zeehan style saying that, you know, we can just, you know, we're, you're, we're going to, you know, dominate no matter what because of, you know, these innate advantages. I think that there, I think the, um, I think, I, I think China, unlike the Soviet Union, is a very, very formidable economic power. And we've, we've, uh, you know, gotten very, very entangled uh, uh, with them from a, from a global trade perspective. But I see, I see, you know this notion of autarky or or uh, self sufficiency um, uh, starting to take root in reshoring trends. I think that's a healthy thing. Uh, I you know because if there's any, I, I I really believe that if there is any country that is capable of true uh, autarky, it's the United States. Because again, you go back to the innate advantages of natural resources and geography. And, you know, um, industrial. And and so, by the way, I I, we didn't we didn't cover this, but I I think it's kind of interesting. Um, Last year, I was um, invited uh, to participate in this uh, uh, geopolitics panel um, with the U.S. Army War College. And it's the first time I learned of this acronym called DIME, D-I-M-E. And that's what the U.S. War College teaches as kind of like the four pillars of national power. The D standing for diplomatic means. I being informational, M being military, and E being economic. And, and um, you know, the focus of our paper here is to focus on the E of D-I-M-E because I, I learned, um, and even by uh, some of the professors that led that, that section that I participated in at the U.S. Army War College, they basically said that, look, the military um, does a really good job uh, with the D-I-M, but where we're somewhat deficient in is the is the e part and i think that part the 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 core right now of the of the great power competition between the u.s and china is on the e part mm-hmm. hopefully it stays on the e part and it doesn't go kinetic but that is a danger um I that agree. is a danger right and and taiwan symbolizes the nexus of the danger right that the, the Ch- taiwan I believe um, is not only uh, a, an economic nexus, right? 
it's 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 a potential uh, uh, kinetic nexus because Taiwan symbolizes not you know TSMC, but also it's from a from a from a geo pure geographical perspective. It is the it is the key for the the uh, for China to be able to force project beyond that first island chain. So, to me, if there was a kinetic escalation in the Taiwan Strait, I see that as a far far bigger deal uh, uh, than Russia Ukraine. I see it, uh, and and I see the ramifications of that potential escalation to have big reverberations on the U.S. dollar. Because if, you know, I don't think we would do this, but if we just basically just laid down and let China take Taiwan, to me, that's actually the biggest threat to the primacy of the U.S. dollar system. It's a geopolitical one. Yeah. I I think. I I agree with you. Michael, uh, we can keep talking about this for hours, I'm sure, (laughs) but unfortunately, we got to wind down at some point. if folks want to find out more about you, follow you on Twitter, you put out these great threads, but also you appear on a bunch of podcasts. What What's the best way people could follow you? Just find out more about your work. Just really just Twitter right now. It's just at Urban Cowboy with a K-A-O. And uh, yep, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, plugging any anything, unlike a lot of, uh, <laughs> unlike, I, don't, I don't write a, you know, paid, you know, sub- subscription or anything like that. So just, just Twitter. I mean, lately, lately, I've been a little bit less prolific because I've been just really focused on writing this paper. And then, and then hopefully I'll be back to my, my Twitter ways. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, Michael, thank you so much for being generous with your time and coming on the show. Uh, it oh, was thank a ton you. Of fun. Uh, yes, it was a great conversation. Sometime. Great conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Absolutely. All right. Cheers. Cheers.